Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host, who you will hear from shortly, is Angela Eduardo. Today, we speak with Dr. Carlos Hoyt. Carlos is a teacher, author, and DEI facilitator who challenges the habits of mind that result in social bias. He explores race, racial identity, and related issues as a scholar, teacher, psychotherapist, parent, and racialized member of society. In his book, The Arc of a Bad Idea, Understanding and Transcending Race, as well as in his workshops and lectures, Dr. Hoyt interrogates narratives and discourse on race with the goal of illuminating and disrupting the racial worldview. In this episode, we discuss his unique views on racial identity and how he developed them, how we should approach the reality of genetic differences between human groups without using race, his background and work in DEI, affinity groups, affirmative action, and his change.org petition to amend the 2030 census to improve the collection of race data. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Dr. Carlos Hoyt. Dr. Carlos Hoyt, I'm really excited. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's an honor. The honor's mine, sir. I, I actually wanted to start by thanking you because um, I think I heard about you through Twitter, even though you're smart enough not to be on Twitter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but some, I, I, I was, you know, waxing lyrical about uh, abandoning race and and rejecting these these despicable categories that have shaped the world that we live in. And someone turned me on to your TED talk, your TEDx talk. And I, I felt compelled to reach out to you. I sent you an email through your website. I shared with you a recent article that I had just posted about the same sort of thing. And you were so gracious with your response. And I wanted to thank you because there were so few people that I was aware of in this space. And it was, it was heartening to find someone who has been working on this. And so, okay, I'm not crazy. And this isn't impossible because here's Carlos and he's been doing it for a while and he's got people. So welcome. And well, I guess, I guess I'll, I'll start by letting you tell us a little bit about what exactly your work is and how you come into this conversation. Happy to give it a shot. Um, but let me first <laughs> say that, you know, what you describe as, as gracious in terms of my reception of your reaching out, uh, I felt it's just gratitude, you know, because you know, I'm in the same boat. I think those of us who, you know, share a non-racial worldview or uh, whatever ways reframe it um, are always looking left, right, up and down to see like, where are the others? Because this makes just right. such clear sense. Um, so it was, um, it was a watershed. It always is, you know, to, to fall into the company of someone like you and others who do share that, uh, that perspective. So it's been uh, really cool. And I've been excited to, have every chance I could uh, to sort of dialogue with you. And I look forward to knowing you, Melissa, too, through this conversation. Uh, so in terms of how I got here, the older you get, the longer your stories get. I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> so when I was um, in my PhD um, study, my dissertation was on racial transcendence and how people arrive at that kind of uh, identity destination you know, where there is a rejection of the racial worldview 
there certainly is no denial or uh, naivete about race and racism, uh, but there is a, a strong sort of feeling that race is not doing us any good <laughs> and the racial worldview is something that we should uh, resist and try to uh, refute and get into the, the dustbin of history as soon as we can. And one of the things I was after is like, you know, did you always feel that way or did something happen, you know, that helped you to feel that way? And in my super, you know, small sample of uh, 10 folks who I ended up putting in the study, although I talked to probably 30 altogether, it was interesting, you know, that there were some of us, and I count myself in this group, who never for a moment, you know, found the whole racial worldview compelling. And then there were others who, as a function of socialization, politics, whatever it might have been, you know, sort of were um, sort of uh, in that box, you know, in that worldview. And then something or some things, you know, happened uh, to make them look outward, start to shift, and then ultimately just sort of reject, um, you know, that worldview. So I sometimes think I, I don't mean to like compare these things as directly as I might seem I'm doing, but, you know, folks who are theistically uh, inclined versus folks who are atheistically inclined, you know, <laughs> those of us who get to talk with each other, like there's right. always this point where you sort of wonder, is there something different about our brains? Like, is that what's going on here? And I do wonder that too about a susceptibility and inclination, you know, a tendency towards accepting constructs and ideas that while they seem maybe coherent internally and internally consistent, uh, we don't connect with reality, you know, and race is one of them. Uh, it's a story that people find compelling, but some of us just sort of ask the last question, which is, well, does it actually connect with reality? And I've always been that kind of a thinker. I was raised in a religious family, not speaking of um, religion and atheism. My, both of my parents and my older sister um, are very religiously oriented. I was raised that way too, but I never you know, felt that that was empirically compelling for me, uh, philosophically, you know, in terms of community that it offers people, et cetera. So I don't know if those things are, are compatible or they speak to each other. Another, I think, you know, sort of strand into or towards how I ended up in this disposition is that I'm a culture straddler. You know, I was lucky enough to be born in a whole different nation. I was born in Costa Rica, got to move up here when I was about three and a half, four years old, landed in Dorchester, over 99% black identified neighborhood in Boston and spent my formative uh, years there. So I got that exposure. But at the same time, I knew that my parents, you know, for them, this whole black white thing was kind of foreign. <laughs> And it doesn't mean that there isn't discrimination based on color and ethnicity and background in Costa Rica, but not the way it's done here. As we know, the, uh, the United States is pretty peculiar when it comes to that sort of thing. So I got to watch these two people sort of navigate, you know, this new frame, you know, around social identity bias. And at the same time, I was being treated, you know, as an adversely racialized black male um, with everything that comes with that. And, you know, it was interesting because when I was coming up, right around my high school years, you know, coming out of the civil rights era, um, affirmative action was happening. There were efforts being made, you know, to identify and support, you know, folks who look like me in terms of academics and other things. So in some ways, uh, almost perversely, you know, I was getting both the negative about what it means to be racialized and in some ways the positive in quotes, you know, efforts that society uh, was making to start to um, sort of level the playing field, but all again within the problematic framework of the racial worldview. So I had that experience. 
And then finally, just some wonderful education. I've always been you know, a voracious reader, not just of what was put in front of me in school, but anything that caught my interest, I would go after it. And even back then, you know, there were writers and thinkers who were dispelling, refuting, arguing against this faulty notion. And those folks were sort of my sustenance, you know, on the way to my own um, opportunity to get to study um, this sort of thing. And then finally, as I said, do some research on it. And since, you know, I've gotten to do all that, I, I well, the research sort of led to um, workshops and writing and uh, being able to do wonderful conversations like this. Uh, the TEDx talk was a blast. Uh, it was a journey in and of itself to, to try to distill my stuff down to 17 and a half minutes. Yeah. And there are times when it's challenging, you know, in that, you know, a lot of people do experience some cognitive dissonance you know, when uh, the subject is brought up. But on the whole, it's been really fulfilling and rewarding just to be able to, in a way, sort of give permission to people to think about what they've been soaked in a little bit differently. Because even if eyebrows go up initially, then usually they level out, you know, and at the end of a good conversation, folks are saying, yeah, that makes sense. How do we get there? That last part can be challenging for folks, but I think there's a good conversation to be had there too. So in a big nutshell, you know, that's a little bit of my journey to where I am these days around this stuff. Carlos, in that TED Talk, you, this was this statement, you actually made this statement. You said that racial equality, like jumbo shrimp, is an oxymoron, <laughs> which I, I learned two things there because I never thought about jumbo shrimp being an oxymoron. But can you actually <laughs> elaborate on, on what, what do you mean by that? Because that, that's a very provoking statement. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, one of the really lovely things about the TEDx talk experience is that I went in being a TEDx talk skeptic um, because it seems so formulaic and so self-promotional and you don't get to talk with people, you're just delivering. And I, I also appreciate it, you know, it does um, for folks who get a chance to take them in. But the team of people I worked with was just so lovely. And it was actually the person in charge of the whole thing. I guess she was a producer. When I, you know, said in my script, I want to really emphasize that, you know, race is not racial equality is an oxymoron. You know, she said, I wonder if a softer, more pleasant, funny analogy, you know, might help there. And she actually offered me the jumbo shrimp thing, which I thought was really, really funny. So, um, oxymoron obviously is a word, or um, you know, that or a combination of words, a phrase, you know, that is contradictory in and of itself, almost hypocritical in some ways. The push for racial equality, which I do not, you know, want to give the impression that I think that's a bad thing um, in terms of the intent and the, the noble effort people have made and the colossal, you know, sacrifices that have been made throughout the history of this country and continue to be made to achieve this thing that we call racial equality. I don't mean to um, be negative about that at all. Instead, I'm sad, you know, that all the effort has been put into something that in a very fundamental way, is a non-starter because race is predicated on the idea of inequality. You know, for something and something else to be made equal, they've got to have a chance to actually be on par with each other. But race was invented, conceived, um, propagated uh, as something that defines some people as more equal than others, you know, to use an animal farm analogy. Um, so to say that we're going to fix that somehow is to fall into sort of a trap and a rotary, you know, that we can only get out of by saying it's not about 
acknowledging that there are races and then trying to treat them equally, right? Because we've already gotten too far into the pit. It's about realizing that there aren't races. Therefore, there isn't a question of having to make them equal because we're just humans. Mm-hmm. So race is a condition, you know, if we're talking about that, if we want to make conditions for human beings, you know, a bit more equitable and equal, absolutely, let's do that. But let's not think that it's kind of like the snitches, right? You know, if we assume that, and this is the Dr. Seuss you know, sort of parable, mm-hmm. if we assume that there's something essential, you know, to us that makes us one of us inferior or superior, then how in the world, you know, without some sort of surgery, you know, or changing our DNA, are we going to fix that? We're going to forever be sort of tokenizing those people, patronizing them because they're just, you know, they're not the same as us, right? We've accepted that. Accepting race means accepting that. People don't have to talk about it and think about it that way, but it's unavoidable. So I say, instead of trying to rehab or rehabilitate, you know, reconfigure race in some way that we can make us all equal, like why go through that trouble? Why not just see that there's no such thing there in the first place? So th- that's really interesting, Carlos, because um, I think most people would push back on that. I, I think most people would yeah. say that the hierarchy is not part and parcel to the use of these categories, right? They they would say, and I I kind of felt this way, right? In my journey towards my current position, there was a spot where. I thought to myself, you know, well, the whole point is, yeah, of course, you know, you're black, I'm brown and they're white. And, you know, those are facts about us, like our height or our hair color, but they shouldn't be in any way, they shouldn't in any way inform the way that we treat one another, right? That was the position that I had, right? Because that's a silly characteristic to use as a basis for treating other people, right? What really matters is who the person is, the content of their character, right? I think most people are there. So what are they not getting about what you're saying? Well, I think you actually illustrated, you know, sort of a flow that maybe is nuanced, you know, and subtle, but really important that people shouldn't treat each other differently based on characteristics like height or hair, uh, color, or texture, or other superficial-ish characteristics. And if we Mm -hmm. think about race that way, then why not say, let's push for quality? But that's not what race is, Mm -hmm. right? And it never was, Mm -hmm. right? Race was always, from the beginning and still is, at least the implication, you know, and since we've, you know, had our genetic, you know, revelations, we know this now, um, undisputably. Um, It was about natural, biological, empirical difference between human groups. That was the basis, mm-hmm. you know, for how people were treated, you know, for some you know, terrible laws that have happened and, you know, some cultural adoption of those things. Even anthropologists, you know, even forensic scientists, even doctors, you know, still harbor some of these thoughts that there is something intrinsically different about these people. Therefore, you know, maybe one subspecies is more tolerant of pain than others. You know, we've seen this through the history of medicine. So it still lingers. And that's an inequality, right? That's an in, that's a difference between people. But there is some reality in that we, we know medically that people with red, red hair, for example, right, especially uh, descendants of um, the Irish, tend to have certain genetic predispositions that other white people don't have, which is to say 
under the conditions where they're administered with anesthesia, they tend to wake up during surgery midway. They have something weird in terms of their tolerance for anesthetics. And what, how, how do you thread this needle? Because there are genetic haplotypes, right? And there is a concept of ethnicity. And we know that because we can sequence all our DNA and trace our lineage. How, and, and race is an imperfect, often sometimes wrong mapping of you know, certain categories above ethnicity. So there is something real underneath race, but it's not entirely accurate. So how do you thread the needle? Because medically and biologically, we do see, you know, at the genetic level that there are differences between humans. Absolutely. But they don't fall into the, and I'll just say roughly five boxes that we put people in. Right? Right. There's no concordance between the kind of differences that you were talking about, which are real. So let's take the, the one that seems to be associated with the color of hair that people who are considered white racialized, right? So what's beneath that? Like what's really going on there? You know, so there are certain human beings who doubtless, you know, because of their ancestry have um, adopted, you know, some traits genetically that express in a certain way that in certain contexts will make them susceptible to this or that. Right. Um, sickle cell is one of those things. Right. Yeah. You know, we think of it sort of grossly, you know, as this black identified thing. We know it's not. You know, there can be some overlap and black gets used as a proxy for it. But that's yeah. really messy, especially if we're talking about science. There are population differences. There are genetic yeah. differences. And I'm at this point kind of OK with referring to some of that stuff as ethnicity, because I think that's a messy concept, mm-hmm. too. But we are now able to be really specific about that. And if we did yeah. race according to that, I don't know how many races we've had. We've had, we've had we would have thousands of races, you know, based yeah. on the different sort of genetic makeup of people that make them susceptible to this or that. That is right. the job of science. That is actually what people are doing right now. And one mm-hmm. of the things that's exciting to me is that, you know, when I periodically sort of try to take a deep dive into how medicine is treating race, it's using race less and less as a proxy, you know, and there are more voices within, you know, the realms of biology, certainly genetics, but also just the medical field who are saying, we need to be a bit more explicit, you know, about what we are saying and talking about here, because the fast and dirty use of that proxy is missing a whole lot and perpetuating what is essentially, you know, sort of racism. Mm. And what I love about like the two pieces of conversation we just had is that you both do a nice job Really, I think um, honoring and respectfully articulating what people have with moving away from our current sort of attachment to race. But in your articulation of it, you actually say the right thing, right? You get to the things that are there. So what's wrong with using race? It's exactly wrong because of the things that you said. It's about characteristics in terms of, you know, Edward, um, Angel, you're um, sort of speaking of it. And Melissa, you know, you did a nice job capturing that it's about genetics, right? It's about haplotypes. You know, it's not about red hair. Red hair might be a proxy, but I bet there's some people with red hair who had this trait too, right? Right. I mean, without red hair, Mm -hmm. who had this trait too. Yeah. Yeah. The the complexity of genetics is hilarious to me in in this context because I always bring this example up of, you know, the genetic diversity within the continent of Africa 
is greater than the rest of the world combined. Absolutely. And yet based on our, right. yeah, right. Like by necessity, it's just the way it's the way it works. But by our metrics, that entire continent pretty much would be racialized as black. They would all be put into yep. the same box, despite that insane amount of genetic diversity. That's and right. if we were to That's really right. get into it, you know, every genetic subgroup is a race. There would be probably hundreds of races just in the continent of Africa. That's yeah, exactly so. right. You know, at some yeah. point we will, we will, I won't see it because I'm getting old, but at some point we will have literally personalized medicine, right? Yeah, we Somebody should will yeah. read, you know, your, your genetic sequence and figure out what works best for you or not. Um, mm -hmm. And there may be some similarities between you and somebody who looks like you, and there may not be, but that's going to become moot, right? Right. We can go right. deeper than that. Right. Right. But, you know, I, I'm heartened by what you said about the, you know, people moving away from race as a proxy in medicine and science. Uh, and, you know, the news is kind of a bad way of, of gauging what trends actually are because you're only going to get bad news and you're only going to get, you know, the salacious stuff. But I think there is this alarming, this alarming propensity that people have and it's, it's informed by the culture and the, the discourse around these topics where race seems to be forwarded as not just a proxy, but the proxy, the way to, you know, determine whether, whether this person versus this person should get certain medical care. You know, like they, this, these people go to the front of the line based on race and things like that. There was a case in New York City regarding um, COVID treatments that FAIR was involved in, um, which used race as a proxy for prioritizing this scarce COVID medication, right? There wasn't enough. And so because there wasn't enough, we're going we're gonna to just decide that race is a factor, is a, a precondition, you know, uh, a comorbidity. And we're going to use that, which would eventually kind of, you know, somebody who's relatively healthy like me and relatively young <laughs> would, be, would get bumped up to the front of the line instead of someone who's racialized as white and is, you know, much older and maybe overweight and has other, has other you know, High issues that would contribute to a much harder time with something like COVID, you know. So uh, I wonder how aware you are of that and what we should do there. Yeah, I love that example because it invites us to um, consider, I don't know if they're just two sides, that's probably reductive, but at least two dimensions of, you know, what you're bringing up. One is the almost um, sort of reactive um, attempt to, I don't know, again, level the playing field or um, right. turn the table so that those who were discriminated against suddenly get privileged. If that's going to be done based on something that we think is essential to those people who are racialized this way and their makeup, that's a huge mistake, as you say, because you and I, you know, even though, even on the screen, we look different in terms of the, the shades of brown that we are, um, we might be pushed to the head of the line and you might be genetically so different than I am that you don't belong in that line at all. Like you might be, right. you know, somebody who doesn't get COVID, whereas I might be somebody who is a bit more susceptible. So that's mm -hmm. one thing that's problematic about it. On the other hand, you know, if we start to see this thing that is referred to as race as circumstance versus corporeality, you know, something that is bodily, um, then we can say, wow, you know, people who are in X, Y, and Z circumstance tend to fare worse or better when it comes to this or that. You know, so folks who are racialized as, I'll just say, white, you know, um, through the COVID um, pandemic, 
you know, seem to be getting greater access to um, treatment or medicine or seeing doctors or whatever than others. And there are other things in there too, location, transportation, social capital, all these things that redound or don't redound to being able to navigate systems. If we can look at circumstance, you know, and then make decisions about how we try to allocate our social resources, that's Mm -hmm. a more valid thing to do, it seems to me. There will be overlap (laughs) in terms of circumstance and how people look because we discriminate, you know, um, very heavily on how people look. But we ought to stop short of falling into essentializing people and saying that because Carlos and Angel are quote unquote black, they should go to the head of the line. Which is what the media ends up doing, actually, because during, I remember the story, Angel, and it, when it was rep, you know, reported that way that oh, black people are, are more likely to, to get COVID um, in, in New York City. So this is an example of some sort of environmental racism. What it looks like, if you dig deeper, is that people of color generally were the ones working during COVID. Like when everyone was at home and they were able to work from home, you know, people still needed their food delivery. People still needed, you know, groceries. And so it was kind of more of a proxy for social class than anything, but it kept getting reported as race. And and similarly, many immigrant types, right, in New York City live in multi-generational homes versus white people tend to live in more nuclear, they're more a bit more isolated from the from their grandparents, for example. And so the the spread among these populations was different. And that was more because of living arrangement than, you know, than something else. But these mm-hmm. stories get coded and talked about and reported as if this is a disease that is plaguing people differently based on race. And that's kind of the impression that, you know, that it gives forth. And that's why I think when New York City tries to allocate drugs efficiently, they think that doing it by race is the best thing to do. Yeah. And again, the good intention there, you know, could be pretty easily, I think, sort of rooted in better science, you know, better logic. And we might come up with some of the same outcomes, I'm not sure, but we wouldn't necessarily be recapitulating, you know, this idea right. of essentialized qualities that make people do this or do that or inferior or superior, et cetera, because that's what happens. I am yeah. waiting for a minute, you know, where I can draft out what I guess would amount to, um, like an APA style guide around how journalists should talk about race. Um, oh, that'd be because great. Yes, that'd right. be great. The portage of it, you know, is still sort of stuck yeah. in. It's okay, you know, to say that the black person, the white person, the Asian person, mm-hmm. and there might be circumstances, you know, under which that makes sense. You know, but the way it's used now is just so willy-nilly, right. and it just reinforces this notion that oh, it's because they are this, you know, that this is mm-hmm. happening. Versus circumstances I, that they're a part of, etc. I love your distinction there between the the you know race itself and the circumstances that race is used as a proxy for. And it seems to me that pretty much with anything, I can't think of anything that you shouldn't do this with. Instead of using the proxy, just go straight to the circumstance, right? I mean, like people talk about this all the time with with you know. If, if you just try to address poverty, for example, you will disproportionately give aid to people who have historically been marginalized and oppressed, and they're in that circumstance for historical reasons of racism and all that sort of stuff. But you're doing it in a way that addresses the circumstance instead of this crude way of a proxy for the circumstance, because 
you know, I don't, I don't really need any aid. I'm not poor, right? So you're wasting your, your time and energy on me. You should give it to somebody else. And even if that guy looks like Casper the Friendly Ghost, I don't care. He's poor, you know, help him. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, it, it seems like such a blatant, like a blatantly crude way of going about it that is so obviously going to open you up to error. And there's just no need for it. But I think, right. I think part of the problem, part of the problem here is the buy-in, right? First of all, people need to understand this. And then we need to figure out how to talk about this, how to get people to understand it, right? So that, that dovetails nicely into the actual work that you do. So how does, how, does, how does all this, all these frameworks that you have and this philosophy that you have, this perspective, how do you apply it? How has it worked? I know you've done some work as a, a DEI facilitator, so maybe we could start there. How does, how does your particular perspective inform that and what, what do you do that's different? Yeah, I would love to talk about some of that. And because you're such lovely thought partners, you know, um, some policy <laughs> stuff too. Uh, affirmative action is yeah. tough to talk, it's fun to talk about um, around this stuff. Yeah, we'll get there. Think about it. <laughs> and maybe even yeah. the census stuff, but we'll see how much time we have. So yeah. No, I we'll definitely the, get to you know, that. I get the great honor and privilege of, you know, being invited to, to do workshops on this stuff and, you know, to teach, you know, actual children uh, about better ways to think about race and racialization. And this can happen either in a workshop or in the classroom, but I'll just use the classroom as an example. So in my last uh, independent school gig, uh, and this was during the terrible social upheaval and COVID, like the world was just coming apart at the seams, um, we created on the fly a course that we called Honoring Differences. And we wanted to give kids a chance to uh, talk about what was happening, but also get some good scholarly foundation around like what is at the bottom of this trouble that we just stay in, you know, regarding the thing we call race and racism. I used a couple of books. So Jerry Craft, um, graphic artist, wrote a couple of books. First one was 2019. This one must have been a year after or something. Class Act, it's the second one. The first one was called The New Kid. And Jerry, who's a black identified uh, person sort of draws on his own experience, you know, in finding himself plunked into what's called a predominantly, you know, white environment for school and some of the challenges that come with that. And he does a beautiful job here, you know, sort of laying everybody out in terms of our stereotypes and how we fumble through this stuff and all that. But in teaching that book, I want to pause and give our kids a chance to just virtu virtuously wrestle with this idea of race. And one of the things I do with kids and others is invite them to make a race, you know, and we use a racialization worksheet. And I know I went through everything quickly in my TEDx talk, but I talked a little bit about the process of racialization as I see it, which, you know, contains five steps. You know, we select some superficial aspect of humanity uh, that we use to divide people. Then we sort people into those things and we know what those um, indicators are for race. Um, then we attribute things, you know, to people based on these sorting that we've made and we essentialize them. We lock them in, you know, that if you're this, you stay this and you pass them on to your next generation and thereafter, et cetera. And then we act on those things as if we're justified to treat people this, this way, because there seems to be this logic to it. Again, internal consistency and coherence, but no connection to actual reality. Mm -hmm. So I say, okay, we know how we do the race one. Let's do another one. Angel, you mentioned height earlier, you know, and I say, let's do one for height. How would we do that? Like, what are the races, you know? And uh, mm -hmm. a student will say, 
I guess we need to figure out what's tall and short because they become the races, right? And I say, that's good thinking. How do we do that? Like, what's the line? And they usually will hover depending on how old they are and how tall they are. It's either going to be 5'10 or 6 feet or something like that. Uh, so let's say 6 and above is tall and anything below 6 is short. All right, awesome. So we have selected, you know, some characteristic. We can sort people now into above and below, which means short and tall. What do we attribute to these people? And sometimes I'll ask, like, I know this is going to age me, I'll say to these youngsters, but do you know the song Short People by Randy Newman? And I might say some lyrics, um, you know, short people got no reason to live, like stuff like that. What are the stereotypes that we have regarding height? And they can spit them out right away, right? So now we're attributing things, right, to these uh, races based on height that we've created. And then I say, how do we do the, the essentialization piece? Like, what's the analog for that when we're talking about height versus race? And then the conversation just gets wonderful, you know, because one student will say, well, if I am 5'8", but both of my parents are above six feet, does that make me tall or short? Right. <laughs> or if I'm just at six, but one of my parents is above six and the other is less than six, does that make me mm-hmm. bi tall short, like biracial? Like, how do we do that? And the arbitrariness, you know, just comes out sort of florid view and people see how silly this is. And then after we have fun with that, now we're down to, but we still act on it, don't we? We still treat people based on what we've been, been conditioned to believe is kind of a legitimate way to probably, you know, like tall people better because they do show up in positions of leadership uh, and office, you know, more than folks who are a certain uh, other height. Like this is dangerous stuff. And we could do it for almost any category. I've done it with thickness of eyebrows, like your earlobe shape, like anything works. And the more absurd it is, you know, the better it sort of illuminates how absurd race is. So that's one of the ways that I um, go after this. It is nonpartisan. (laughs) It's not political. It's purely sort of scholarly and cognitive, and people get it. And then the question mm-hmm. is, what's the praxis? What do you do with this after you leave here now? Because I don't tell kids what to think, because some of them are Black-identified, and they have pride in that, which is cool. I'm not telling them to not do that. But if we're going to be scholars, right, then we should know the way the world works. And people have not mm-hmm. given you a chance to really think about this. one. So here you are. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do? And it's a lovely experience. Mm-hmm. Doesn't, do the kids ever bring up, well, but they're they're going to be, most of them are going to be at least eligible for, for the basketball team, which is, you know, something that is very concrete and pretty much what the shortest NBA player ever was maybe five, five. Was it, um, can't remember his name now, but maybe, I don't know. Or Nate, was it Nate Robbins? Yeah. Someone was five, five, someone was five, five, but I think that was the shortest ever height. And the the average height is, you know, it's going to be well, well above six feet. So does, right. Do the kids ever bring this up and say like, look, there's, there's something that's very concrete about your realities, your biological reality of being a tall person or, or being a short person. And it's going to, you know, there is some sort of uh, determinism that's baked, baked into there. Well, yes, because it, it leads to, it invites a conversation about context, you know, so a question I might ask if that comes up in, if that comes up is, Awesome. In what, in what context is it beneficial to be, you pick a height, you know, 6'2", 6'5", 6'7", 6'8". And now we're going to talk about basketball and reaching things that are high up and things like that. Right. And then I ask, okay, 
are there any contexts in which it might not be useful to be that hype? And kids can come up with yeah. them, you know, yeah. sitting on a plane, sitting in a car, like all sorts of things. We can do the reverse too. So now instead of essentializing a difference and attaching it, you know, to a privilege, we know that under certain circumstances, any of us, you know, can be on the right or wrong side of advantage or disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And we just mm-hmm. beautifully, and I think importantly, sort of problematize the simplification that we do around all of this. Mm. Wow, that's beautiful. Mm. I love and it. So, and and it's, so, your D, this is, so your teaching DEI is this mostly to, is it corporate or is it a corporate setting or is this mostly to kids? My, most of my career has been in schools. Um, okay. Since I've been doing this for a while, it was funny. I think the first sort of roles for DEI stuff and before it was called DEI that I got outside of my school work was museums. Mm. And that's because I happened to work with a colleague who was teaching art at my school who was also connected to um, the Museum of Fine Arts. And she asked at some point if I would do some work um, with their docents, right, the folks who do the tours, um, because in a city like Boston, you know, we try to get kids like me who, who never knew what a museum was at a certain age to sort of show up in these places. And again, I'm generalizing and I, I hope it's not too unfair, but there's somewhat of a correlation, you know, between folks who end up in docent roles, at least in a town like Boston, and their backgrounds. You know, they tend to be mm-hmm. folks who are possibly, you know, affluent, possibly white identified, et cetera. And, you know, through no fault of anybody, they're not as familiar, you know, with kids who aren't as familiar <laughs> with that life. Um, so things that we call microaggressions or indignities or mistakes sort of get made. Uh, so she thought it might be useful to just talk with them about some things that might help. And I ended up sort of shadowing some groups, you know, around the, the building and seeing what was said or what wasn't said and watching some kids walk in there as comfortable as you please, right? Because they've been there before. They've been there with their folks. And some kids like, whoa, like, where are we? Same thing with a place called the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. I love that place. It is so beautiful. Oh, I love it too. But I I, I saw myself, a documentary about a, an art theft about yes. that place. Yeah, the, Vermeers, the Vermeers and Rembrandts, I think, were stolen. Yeah. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> Hasn't been cracked, by the way. Still don't know who did it. I know it's an yeah. ongoing mystery. Yeah. I have watched kids sort of gasp, you know, particularly kids of color, you know, not over just the, the splendor of the place, but a person owned this building is what they will say. Mm-hmm. Like, how is that possible? Like on this planet. Right. Um, yeah. And docents aren't necessarily thinking about like that level of, you know, uh, getting kids familiar. They want to get to the art, you know, and talk about what they know, et cetera. Um, so anyway, that's how my work started. Um, so I'll give you a a quick tour of who I work with right now. I support one, two, three schools. I think we're about to start with a third. One is uh, an independent school is Concord Academy, Hmm. which is a town next to mine. And I don't actually do DEI there. I do psychotherapy there. Um, Hmm. it is related to privilege and uh, disadvantage in that I was asked to come there to actually be as available as I could to any kid because I'm a clinician, but particularly to kids of color for whom <laughs> acclimatization to, to conquer can be a little bit challenging. Not for all of them, but for some of them. <laughs> I support a collaborative of special needs programs, um, you know, up in my area too. And there, you know, things like ability, you know, and what we call disability, you know, can be a primary sort of social identity challenge along with all the others. Um, and I support a public school, um, you know, in a town where, you know, there is some resistance uh, to things like DEI because there is 
concerns that are sometimes fomented about critical race theory and you know, what is SEL and who should be teaching what to whom. Um, mm-hmm. I also do some work with the uh, ECSF. I'm going out there in mm-hmm. November to talk to um, folks who are in labs. Uh, labs tend to be run by, again, you know, accomplished folks who tend to, you know, well, very often end up being, you know, white identified males. And UCSF does a wonderful job trying to recruit for diversity. But then once you have diversity, are you ready for diversity? So I help them mm-hmm. out there. Um, I work with a writing center here called Grub Street Writing Center, which is very dedicated to this. Um, so I don't, you know, tend to show up in places like IBM. I'd be happy to, um, but I think simply because of my sort of educational lineage, I tend to sort of do work with groups like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and I have just there's a big space in my heart, you know, for schools who are wanting to do this better because I just think kids really need to start with this work. Mm-hmm. That's where our yeah. best chances are. I definitely agree with that. And you use the phrase uh, children of color, people of color a couple of times. And it made me think that you and I maybe disagree a little bit about methodology. I think, I think you may have been, you may have said it, or at least you may have articulated something to this effect of the only way out is through. And so I'm curious if there are any moments where you think that kind of um, accepting the premises of, of racialization and race categorization for the purposes of moving kids out of it. Like for example, affinity groups based mm-hmm. on race. Do you ever work in that way and why, if so? Yeah, let's talk about this. This is a, it's such an important conversation to have. And mm-hmm. I think it can be fun with almost anybody, but I know it'll be fun with the two of you. And when I say that, I don't mean to take it lightly. But I do think this work sometimes like begins with like this really serious, like deep bass tone to it, you know? <laughs> and I think when we're talking about ideas, ideas can and should be fun, you know, to, to navigate mm-hmm. and negotiate. Um, so I do find myself, you know, Angel, like shifting from what I think is the best way to talk about social identity categories associated with race. So you'll hear me say things sometimes like, Black identified or nominally black or racialized this way or that. But then sometimes I hear myself saying people of color. And I think it's because those are still the coins of the realm in terms of the way people talk about this. I don't think they're the best ways, though. And I find myself doing yeah. it less and less. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about affinity groups sort of regarding the perceived need for folks who are adversely racialized to meet apart from you know, folks who are advantageously racialized and have a safe space, you know, to talk about their experience, um, lend each other some support, et cetera, et cetera. We know what they are purported mm-hmm. to be for. In an not even ideal world, um, but in a better engineered school or even building, because, you know, there are companies that do affinity stuff too. Before, let's say the two of you are interviewing for my school or company or whatever it is, I would want you to know from the beginning that we take very seriously the fact that there is social bias in this world. And we understand Mm -hmm. that it is strongly attached to the way that people perceive other in terms of social identity. And we know that that has led to a practice, you know, of making space, you know, for folks to meet within a self-identified group to talk about how things are for them. 
we agree with the intent of all of that, we work really hard not to actually recapitulate separatism, but actually doing it in separate groups. Instead, Mm -hmm. we invite anybody who wants to talk about social bias experiences to come together. And our affinity is going to be our uh, interest in decreasing social bias by understanding how all of us, you know, experience that. And for the person to my left, it may be that, you know, because of how I looked and how I was raised, I actually get advantages. And for the person to my right, it may be, but boy, it's really hard for folks who look like me these days because so many people come at me with bias. Let's all talk about it. If we were to begin with that, you know, and get people used to talking that way so that, you know, I don't feel if I'm a black identified person that I have to explain myself to everybody and educate everybody, which feels like a burden, you know, and the white identified person doesn't feel like they can't say anything, you know, because they're going to be seen as a racist, you know, or the mm-hmm. problem. And those groups, and I have run groups like that. Those are rich groups. Like that's where we need okay. to get, right? Until we just get rid of social bias altogether. Uh-huh. So, and I, you can ask me, do I think there's ever a time when the other kind of the customary type of affinity group is okay? Right. I've been in schools, most schools I've been in, to tell you the truth, you know, have established affinity groups before I've gotten there. So if I get to be part of the, the guidance, the direction of DEI, my thing mm-hmm. is always, yeah, I get that. You know, parents expect it. You know, some of the older kids actually want it during the George Floyd, you know, thing like, yikes, you know, it just felt unsafe for folks. Under certain circumstances, you know, it makes sense if we are considering this thing we call race to be a circumstance, right? To ask folks who feel that they are experiencing an acute, you know, circumstance, Mm. if they would benefit from hanging out a little bit together, not forever, you know, not Mm. to the exclusion of learning to talk about this stuff with everybody, Because after all, we have to get out of this room at some point and deal with those other people, you know, all other people. Mm -hmm. Then I think if it's on its way to something, that's okay with me. You know, because Mm -hmm. it can be very hard, I think, especially to talk to, you know, very well-educated, very dedicated, especially Black-identified parents and say, like, we're not doing that anymore. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's like, let's expand, like, this thinking around what is the rationale behind this in the first place? What are we accomplishing, Mm -hmm. you know, for these kids by doing it for a while? You know, how do we start to, you know, sort of cross the bridge to make sure that their white identified peers are also getting a chance to talk about what it's like to be racialized? And then how do we Mm -hmm. get together? Interesting. So it's a meet people where they are sort of approach. Yes, but not strand them there, which is where I think people have, you know, are in terms of race. I think people are strand meet people where they are. It's a meet people where they are, then drag them out of there. <laughs> well, you know, I sometimes talk about the room of racialization. I have this little graphic about this, you know, that mm-hmm. you can be way back against the black wall, you know, where you're a florid racist. You can be up towards the door, but still inside the room where you're a super liberal and you want racial equality, but you haven't mm-hmm. escaped the racial worldview until you open the door and step out, right? And just right. see this exactly. differently. But yeah. I guess, and part of it is me being a therapist, I appreciate, you know, that people get where they get when they get there. You know, and some things are very hard to move through. And I can't, with a client on the first meeting, say, here's what you need to do. (laughs) Like, stop thinking that way and everything will be better. It's a process, (laughs) I think, for a lot of people. That's fair. Okay, but but if you you step out of the room entirely, then how do you see affirmative action operating in the real world? Okay. So schools and corporations, the army, like the whole world right now, you know, is 
not just dedicated to, but I think unavoidably committed to reckoning with diversity, right? Sometimes volitionally, you know, because the research is in, we know that different viewpoints, you know, produce better results, all that stuff. And the world is just getting more diverse, you know, so unless you're someone who wants to live in that gated community with only people who look like you, you've got to run into people who don't look like you. So we have to contend with it one way or the other. And there is a, a stake, you know, there's an interest in having that. So let's just stick with colleges for the moment. So higher education, our school, you know, Fear University um, believes that a diverse student body is going to result in a richer experience for everybody. And we also recognize that there are some disenfranchised people in our um, nation who don't, who don't get to go to a school like ours. So we want them to have a chance to, right? That's circumstance. So when we um, ask folks to fill out an application, we're not asking them what their race is because that's just a poor proxy for anything. But we are going to ask them about their racialization. Like, so at FAIR, we won't call us FAIR University, we are interested in knowing how you contend with adversity, how you approach academics, right? And how, in terms of social science stuff, like you sort of navigate a world that is getting more and more diverse. So please tell us, you know, what's your relationship to racialization? And now everybody writes about it. It's one that you have to write about. And if I'm writing for Carlos Hoyt Jr., I actually have kind of a typical racialization story to tell. The immigrant thing is thrown in for me and some other things as well. But I could actually write down, you know, how it is in some ways benefited me, you know, in many ways been a real danger um, in my life. And now the school can consider that. If I am my wife, you know, who um, looks more, quote unquote, white than anybody on the screen right now, she has a different story to tell. You know, it's one that has to do with, at least regarding race, you know, privilege and advantage. You know, but what about gender? I haven't even mentioned that, right? <laughs> and I think that should be on the application too. But that kind of a um, vetting consideration is not susceptible to someone saying, reverse racism, where now you're just being racist against us, or you are giving people a uh, privilege based on who they supposedly are. No, we're not. Mm -hmm. We're asking for your story, which is what we do when we consider candidates, at least at the college level. Right? Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a very interesting move to make. I can't say, obviously, you know, with predictable certainty that it would result in more black racialized people showing up on college campuses uh, but I can say that it avoids the other problem that we've been having, which is using mm. race as a proxy, you know, for advancing people. I, I wonder how, though, because, uh, you know, asking how those questions. Avoid that problem? Yeah, because asking those questions seems to me, you know, what do you want my story for? Right. That's what I would be asking is why are you asking me about my particular plight with respect well, to Not necessarily these... your plight. It could be your privilege as well. Well, even that though is is that sounds very much like well, I've I've had such a privileged life and et cetera, et cetera. Why do you need that information? Why? What's the purpose? And what are you? How are you? How are you boxing me in or categorizing me to create this diverse student population using that? Those those details. Why is that a legitimate and useful question to ask? Right. So, I don't know how many. Um, campus, especially, you know, sort of boarding experiences you've had. But I think they're, especially for young people, and I consider college people to be young people, 
um, the dynamics that happen at college are so tinged, you know, by power and socialization. Um, and we see it in everything from who's raising their hand, who's taking what courses, you know, who is literally abusing whom, you know, on college campuses. Mm-hmm. That it seems to me perfectly legitimate to invite, to actually prompt, you know, potential inhabitants of our fear university to think pretty hard about that because you're going to be a player in the game here and you're bringing this stuff with you. I often say that people bring their predicaments, you know, and some of the predicaments that are foisted on us have to do with our social identity, which none of us ask for, right? They just come with us. So, you know, as a way to get a sense of how you're going to navigate, you know, these unavoidable, you know, straits, you know, and turbulences, you know, of social identity interaction, we'd like to know how your journey has been. Now, I, you know, if I were on the admissions team, would not be there with a red pen saying, oh, this person has had a privileged life. They don't need to be here. They sure as heck do need to be there, right? You know, as does the, well, let's then be a bit more specific, this white identified male person, you know, who's come from affluence. I don't want that person. That's not what this is about. I want that person. I want the black identified person of affluence. You know, I want everybody across the spectrum. And this gives me a chance to build, you know, that kind of population. Just the same way that we want certain athletes, right? Like we need a good quarterback. You know, we just lost ours. He graduated. We need a tuba player. You know, we like folks who come from the center of the country and not just the coast. We want a a really robust international population. Like we ask about all those things. Why? Mm -hmm. Because we're interested in a certain kind of mix of demographics. And I would argue, I guess, or offer, you know, that it's okay to think about navigation of social uh, conditions and dynamics as well. Mm. I'm not sure I'm completely sold on it as we talk about it, but I think it might be a way forward. Oh, no, I, I guess my understanding of why they ask for those stories is to contextualize scores, especially in the United States where there's not much standardization of a 4.0 GPA from this particular school in this school district in one state. You know, how do you compare it to a 3.5 in another, from another school in another state? And, and the idea behind asking for people's stories, especially in the essay questions, I, I think has been to contextualize this. Okay, you got... 1,200 on your SATs. Well, you know, if you were of a certain socioeconomic class, you probably had access to better prep than somebody that didn't. And so maybe the same score from somebody who came from a a lower social class means more. You did more, or it's more of a demonstration of your your, uh, sheer intellectual prowess to get that score versus, you know, I'm sure I'm showing my age because they've probably changed the SAT scoring system um, by now, as they <laughs> often do. And actually now they're totally revamping it. There are many schools that have dropped the SAT requirement entirely, which is, you know, an, another thing to talk about, but probably not in this conversation. But that's what I think they're trying to do when they ask for stories. And also the, the human brain just, I don't know, why do politicians go up and you know, focus so much on their story. It's, it's just to contextualize their life, their struggle. I got here despite this. And these were the hurdles thrown in front of me. And colleges so often want to see tenacity, want to see resilience. Um, and they want their student population to have that. And so they're trying to select for that particular trait. My issue with the college admissions process has been as we... So, so what, you know, ultimately, what is the telos of education? For you, Carlos, you said 
we want a healthy mix of demographics because, you know, whatever moral good you think that does, some somebody else can say, well, I think the telos of education is just pure academic excellence. We got to prepare students for, to enter the workforce, right? I mean, under those conditions, then is diversity a moral good at all? If it's just preparing these young adults to enter the workforce and be good employees? I think that's, that's you know, a question that's totally up for debate, um, especially now. Yeah, I think it's a great question too. I think, and I hope I'm being, I hope I'm not being too, um, there's no rose-colored glasses about it. Those two, and there can be others, also purposes, rationales for doing education, period. Those two things actually talk to each other really nicely, whether it's academic excellence or artistic excellence, political excellence. I mean, we know pretty much that any sort of end product that involves human interaction will probably be richer um, and more robust if different perspectives contribute to it. And we know that different perspectives do wend their way very often through personal experience. It doesn't mean that, you know, my neighborhood of kids who grew up with me and we pretty much sort of did everything the same can't be wonderful thinkers. But there's pretty pretty high likelihood that a neighborhood across the world, you know, if we all got together, wow, great things are going to happen. So academic excellence is probably enhanced by that and our readiness to go out into a world that is more and more diverse in terms of the workforce and more and more global all the time will also probably be enriched. You know, if I've had the chance to sit across and talk with and debate with and fall in love with and everything else, you know, folks who I may never have known had I not arrived at the Fair University campus and had a chance to have my horizons expanded. So I think there's a way in which those things can be, they're presented as sort of a dichotomy, but it's a false dichotomy. You know, I hear a lot from parents, some of them are genuinely concerned that, you know, academic rigor or DEI is the enemy of academic rigor. This thing you call diversity is going to just go, you know, water down, you know, what we're sending our kid here to achieve. And the muse is in. No, it's the opposite. Things get better as long as we're managing diversity and not allowing it to lead to fractiousness and, you know, tensions and conflicts that are really unnecessary. Mm. Well, speaking of that, uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to make sure to talk about your very interesting project that you and I have discussed. We, we were in person at a conference in Lexington, Massachusetts, uh, not too long ago. And you have this change.org petition, which calls for an amendment to the 2030 census about the way that we collect race data. So tell us a little bit about that and, and where you're coming from with that. Yeah, it's, um, it's a really like interesting thing for me to observe even while I'm sort of in it and sort of pushing it because it's an interesting moment I feel and I, it's going to sound sort of a, I don't know, highfalutin, maybe dramatic, but it's an interesting moment in the history of this country, right? The U.S. Census Bureau has for the first time ever, you know, invited folks in this country to actually give some input uh, into the way the next decennial census uh, will roll out. Simply hasn't happened before. Uh, input has come from Internally, you know, folks who work at the census, for politicians, and then sometimes, you know, just from citizens who are pushing, you know, to have uh, their sense of who they are a bit more recognized in the census. Uh, but never have they just said to all of us, if you have a thought, we'll hear it. 
Now, I don't know what's going to come out of any of that. The census is a, a really dug in institution. Um, and the way it makes changes is exceedingly incremental because anything too drastic and they just upend their stats. Right? So that's always sort of number one for them. I have watched, you know, the census for as long as I've been alive. And it's luckily this country isn't that old. So you can go right back to the beginning, 1790, and sort of see this, the way this, this the way that this thing has moved, you know, over time and no offense to anybody who works at the census it's madness. Um, there's so little <laughs> rhyme or reason or logic, right. you know, to what the same thing the census in is. So long story short, when it comes to collecting race data, you know, there are two general reasons uh, why the Bureau wants to do this. One is to achieve as, you know, the best representation we can for people who identify certain ways that matters in this country. Um, the other is to try to monitor and then address uh, instances of discrimination that might correlate with uh, social identity and particularly race uh, in this country. Both of those things to me actually seem like pretty good goals, um, but both of them are imperfectly um, achieved by the way the census has been going about it. So there are three things, you know, to get to the um, sort of the goal here that the census collection process should aim for. One is inviting people to say whether or not they self-racialize at all. Right now, that's not an option. Uh, you are to pick a race. It is a requirement. And if you don't want to pick a race, you can pick a box that says literally some other race, which means you're picking a race. Um, but there's right now, there's no option to say, I don't self-identify by race. It would be like... Um, inviting people to say what religion they are and having no option to say, well, you know, I don't actually identify by religion. So there's that. And that would be new, right? Uh, so the middle of the three uh, is something the census is already doing, right? If you do identify racially, please tell us which one of our boxes, you know, you'd like to go into. And within that, there's a lot of sort of subtextual discussion that could be had because a lot of people feel like the boxes don't make sense or my box isn't really there, et cetera, et cetera. But that one yeah. preserves what the census is already doing, right? So I would not say get rid of that one. That's important, actually. And then finally, the other addition would be, please let us know how people tend to racialize you. Because in terms of monitoring for discrimination, that's where the mm -hmm. data is. Because I can walk out into the world, you know, and say, I'm from Costa Rica. Like, I don't want any part of your American black, white, crazy racist, racism stuff. Like, I don't even identify that way. That doesn't matter. I don't even have time to say that before I get attacked by somebody who wants to size me up, you know, as a, mm -hmm. as a black male and do whatever they think, you know, is justified to somebody who looks like me. So the mm -hmm. two things that are additions to this, in my view anyway, don't cost the census anything. I even mocked up a form, as you know, Angel, to show how easy it would be uh, to just make a change to the form yeah. they've been using for a long time now. But the gains mm -hmm. you know, we would make, we would find out how many of the roughly 50 million people who check some other race actually want to say, I'm not down with race. But we don't have that mm -hmm. data. We have no idea you know, how many people are not represented in our country who feel that way. And that's a shame. Yeah. And you and I started you know, by saying, we found each other. What a wonderful thing. <laughs> like the country right. isn't looking for us. They're not giving us a chance to say we're even here. And then the last change, again, 
really gets to what is the essence and the the heart and the motivation for people being mistreated in terms of their racial identity. And that is how other people mm-hmm. perceive me, not necessarily how I yeah. perceive myself. And let's be honest, in most cases, those things probably do match up because people do accept their racialization. Um, but for a lot of people, particularly, I would say, you know, folks who are right now in the this Asian, you know, massive, I'm glad you can't see the ends of my arms because it's like bigger than I can do um, category and the so-called Hispanic, like there's yeah. lots of yeah. problems in there. Crazy. You know? And I think it's a lot of those folks who are probably checking some of the rates. Mm-hmm. So those are the improvements that I have in mind. The change.org thing was just a chance to, um, to see how many people, you know, might say, yeah, that's not a bad idea. The, mm-hmm. the input to the census well, needs to be delivered to them. Sometime in November, November, November 19th, November 15th. I, I double check. And we'll, and we'll put, we'll put a link to the, we'll put a link to the change.org. Uh, That'd be great. In, you know, the description. I, yeah. My hope is that over time, you know, more and more people will sort of uh, check that even after I've submitted to the census. Um, yeah. But the census historically has paid attention to big numbers. You know, that's how right. they check um, more than one race um, sort of option got yeah. put there too. It took decades to get there, so I don't know if anything will happen with this by 2030. Um, but just mm-hmm. having the opportunity, I think, is exciting. And we'll see what happens. Well, it's interesting because we do that, I feel like we do that for gender a bit more easily. It's like male, female, or prefer not to say. There, there seems to be that option for gender, which is actually, you know, that has a concrete biological basis. <laughs> let's, let's not get into that. I know. But. Well, and you, well, I was, I was going to say, you know why it isn't there for race, but that's a little bit too uh, declarative. Mm-hmm. I fear, I think, you know, it's not there for race because of what we talked about in the racialization process, right? It's essentialized, yeah. right? This country right. was, in terms of social identity, founded, you know, on the notion that, oh, you are a race and whatever race you are, you stay that race. Um, so why would we give you an option to not say you're something that certainly everybody is? And right. that, I think, in, I also like, I slide into the, you know, the document, the question as to whether or not it's even constitutional to compel people to identify with something that they don't identify with. You know, it's the other side of free speech, like um, compelled speech is not okay either in this country. You know, so whenever I personally, somebody who doesn't believe in the racial worldview am told (laughs) that I have to pick one of these boxes, you're compelling me, you know, to endorse Mm -hmm. something that I don't believe in. Right. Yeah, I, I would. I'm glad that you added, I think that was a recent development, adding the box of no race. Oh, it's actually the, the first one on the form that's in the document. I have a copy okay. of this here. So right now the census okay. form says, what is this person's race? Uh-huh. So in my proposed change, the question now is, how is this person racialized? And the yeah. very first box is, you know, um, I do yeah. not identify by race. I would be happy to check that box. Absolutely. But I have problems. And I just wonder how many other people will. I have problems though with the rest of it, Carlos, because, um, well, the first thing about how are you racialized, right? I'm, I'm, and I mentioned this to you during that conference that we were talking about. I love being a confounding variable, yes, and that's what I am here because how am I racialized? Ask ten people, you'll get ten different answers, right? I, uh, some people insist that I am black. Some people insist that I am mixed. And some Arab. people on Twitter especially insist that I'm white because <laughs> I write certain things and think certain ways. <laughs> you write <And> so, white. <laughs> yeah, I write white. Exactly. And, 
you know, there are people, I live in New York City, and there are people, this happens to me often, where people walk up to me speaking Arabic or Greek. And they're, they're nonplussed when I tell them that I don't speak it. You know, what one woman actually got really upset when I told her, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know what you're saying to me. Not because she, she was upset that I'm not Greek, but because she thought I was a Greek who doesn't speak Greek. Like that's, wow. what, that's what was offending her. That's how certain she was that I'm Greek, right? So, so there's a lot of ambiguity in that sort of thing that I think a lot more people fall into than you might think, right? So, you know, there are there is a certain subset of people where they would say, yeah, I'm racialized as white. You know, everybody just knows it. And I'm racialized as black. Everybody just knows it. But I think there's a ton of people who are in between in some weird way and their experiences vary. And so I wonder what the relevance of that data would be because I think if 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 this necessary complexity were somehow reproduced there, I don't know what conclusions you'd be able to come to. I don't know what what policies you'd be able to enact or propose based on the circumstances because things are so nebulous and difficult to to parse. Yeah, and I think, think the importance of what you're you're pointing out here, Angel, is the I don't know part, right? Mm-hmm. We can't know if we don't have the data, but we know that it's empirically true that there are people like you, you know, out there who will get sized up, perceived, categorized, boxed in all sorts of ways that confound mm-hmm. the simplistic and problematic way that we categorize people. We need the data to figure out what we should do with that, right? Mm-hmm. To avoid you know, the collection of that kind of information is to live in a kind of, I don't know, very pernicious fantasy, you know, in which we can just simplify people. Because once you fill out the census, the current form, they're boxing you in any way. And in a way that I think, you know, does violence, you know, to your complexity. So let's find out about that. And if the census were to say, no offense, folks, at the census, we don't want to deal with that complexity, yikes. You know, if you're not going to deal with it, who is? One of the things the census does on the way to big censuses, like the decennial, is they do lots of trials, right? So between now and 2030, they can test this out in all sorts of ways. Let's see what we get back. If we ask it this way, if we ask it that way, and maybe by the time we get to 2030, we'll have something that will actually return some data Mm -hmm. that is workable. I think it'll all be useful because knowledge is knowledge. But your question, what do we do with it? We will find out once we learn what it is we're dealing with. I'm sorry, Melissa. Oh, no. I, I, I'm just saying, I, I'm the kind of person who would never even fill out something like that and never turn it in if, <laughs> at all. <laughs> like I, I'm just anti-census. Yeah. <laughs> now, I was going to say, the thing Angel most often gets racialized as is the weekend. That's what that's the, the most common thing for Angel. Someone just said that to me Yeah. the other day. Carlos, we, we always ask our last guests um, the same question. Um, and it is, you know, a focus at FAIR is providing a pro-human alternative to pro-human view of some of the issues that, you know, that we, we deal with. And our question to you is, what does pro-human mean to you? And what can everyday people do to model that better? That's a great question to end on and maybe do a whole session on. I would like to um, see a world in which people... So I mean, kids were taught as quickly as possible to understand and 
become as skilled and comfortable as possible navigating the human condition, which is obviously I have a bias as a human, <laughs> a pretty amazing thing and ought not to be shrunken, you know, and reduced uh, in the ways that we tend to uh, reduce the human condition. So something that, you know, I would consider to be pro-human is something that really respects all of that. We have the saying in education, you know, it's been around for a while now, we should teach the whole child, right? We don't want to sort of narrow down a, a complex little human being's experience. You know, I think pro-human sort of evokes that for me. You know, let's never you know, allow ourselves to take the easy path, which is sometimes what the brain wants to do, you know, and do quick and dirty proxies for this and that, and let's just move on. Instead, let's find the discipline and build the intellectual, cognitive muscles to always ask, oh, and what about this other thing? You know, that's part of the human condition. How does that factor in here? Are we leaving anything out? Are we leaving anybody out? Are we considering the, you know, the downstream consequences of this, the unintended consequences, if we're looking at the whole you know, panoply of what it means to be human on this planet? And I would add, you know, because we tend to act as if we're stewards for this planet, that means taking in the non-human world as well, right? Whether it's the living beings we call animals or plants, I mean, the whole thing, right? I would consider sort of a pro-human approach to everything that we do here. That's very well said. Dr. Carlos Hoyt, thanks for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Oh, it's been a delight. Um, thank you both. Um, I I benefit from having you as thought partners, so we'll have to find a way to keep talking. Awesome. Thank you very much, Carlos. That was a great combo. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.